I'm not very familiar with the book of Amos. I've so read it before, read it a few times, but I've never <clears throat> studied in depth or preached on it, so it's been a good uh, time to do that. Have you ever watched a movie and you're watching it and you sort of pause it because you want to go away and do something and come back? And pausing a movie is very handy, isn't it? You can even pause television now, but I haven't got one of those. But uh, it's good to be able to pause things, come away. And sometimes I wish I could pause the things that go on in my mind, the memories that just keep coming back that I don't want to be there. I wish I could pause them and stop them. But that idea of pausing, sometimes we can do that with God because we can be convicted by God to do something and we just sort of pause. Oh, look, God, it's not the right time now. I'll do it later. Put a pause on that. Uh, but later often never comes. It's easy to do it, sort of put the, press the pause button with God and uh, look for a time that suits us, but that time will probably never come. The nation of Israel and Judah, they've split up. So you've got Judah in the bottom, Israel at the top, um, and they've split up and they've pressed the pause button with God. And they've pressed the pause button because uh, they know that God has done so much for them in the past, saved them out of Egypt, rescued them, made them a nation, uh, but they just want to have a break. And so uh, they're now not just paused, but they're to a point of ignoring God. And uh, there's a problem here because they have an extensive knowledge of God. Uh, they know their history. It's been recited over and over and over how he's you know, chosen them out of Egypt uh, from slavery as a group of people through the wilderness with Moses providing food for them, giving them the promised land. just goes on and on and on. Uh, they've had King David come along and King Solomon, great kings. They know the history. But this a close association with God has now led to a loss of respect. Uh, they're taking God for granted. They're presuming upon his love and now they're living in an opposite way to what he's told them. And so the book of Amos is, is raising this question. And it's raising the question with them but also raises the question with me. Can we do that to God today? Can we be followers of Jesus Christ with such an extensive knowledge of what God's done for us in Jesus but we can press the pause button. I know myself, I, I want Jesus to be my saviour. I always need to be saved, but it's hard to make Jesus as Lord. Lord means I obey. Lord means I do what he wants me to do. Sometimes you can be tempted to press the button on the, on the uh, Lord part um, and maybe do that later. Well, Amos has got something to remind us about here and challenge us in our commitment to God. First of all, the map, um, we see um, that where Amos comes from, Tekopia is, or, or Tekoka, is a part of uh, Judah, the bottom part of the nation below uh, Jerusalem. It's in a mountainous area. It tells in verse 1 that the words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, uh, so he's a shepherd. Uh, we learn in chapter 7 that he has uh, sycamore groves. So he's, a, he's a farmer. He's, he's into agriculture. Uh, he's not like the other prophets that are raised up because when you look at some of the other prophets, uh, they come from the, the king's court like Isaiah and then you've got priestly families like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and they're used to public speaking, they've been raised that way but this guy is just off the land, not into public speaking, not to public appearances but God has called an ordinary person to be his mouthpiece and to speak through him, that's what a prophet does. Uh, He's been sent to the northern kingdom. If we have the next slide, uh, we'll see there's the southern kingdom and then the northern kingdom of Israel above, so Judah and Benjamin in the south and the other ten tribes that make up Israel in the north. He's been sent to the northern kingdom. 
because the nation has been split for a while since after Solomon. Uh, we know it's about 760 to 750 BC. All this is happening because it's dated with, with kings and with an earthquake and other things that give us a pretty accurate idea that it's in that, that 10 years of so 760 to 750 BC. Uh, we know at that time that the, um, both kingdoms are enjoying great prosperity. Uh, they're reaching new political and military heights. Things are going really well for them. They're at the top of the game. But it's also a time of idolatry. They're worshipping a whole lot of other gods. There's extravagant indulgences in luxury living. Uh, their immoral immorality and corruption of legal practices and the poor are being oppressed. So it's going really good on one hand, but it's going really rotten in how they're behaving with each other on the other. And it says the Lord roars in verse 2. The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The Lord God roars. It's, it's the idea uh, for Amos is a roaring lion. He was used to guarding sheep. He was used to lions being around and they would be roaring. And if you've ever heard a lion roar, they really get your attention. They're not something you can ignore. If there was a lion in this room and roared, we'd all know about it. We'd all be very switched on and you know, ready to go or whatever. Lions have that way of grabbing your attention. And that's what's happening here, that the Lord is roaring. The Lord's like a lion. And it says in chapter 3, verse 4, Does a lion roar in the thicket when he has no prey? Does he growl in his den when he's not caught nothing? And 3, 8, The lion has roared, who will not fear? The lion is God Almighty, the sovereign Lord, and he's spoken. And so God is pairing himself with a roaring lion, someone who who you should be really wary of and careful with and respect. It also says, not just roar, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. You ever heard thunder? You can't ignore it, can you? If it's nearby, or even if it's a long way away, you hear it. I mean, you're watching television, everything starts rattling and banging and it's loud and it's really a noise you can't ignore. And saying the thunder here is from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the place where God chose that he would uh, make his kingdom and he would um, rule from. He would set up his temple. People would come there and worship him and meet with him there. And now that's all been undone because both these kingdoms have gone away from God. Both these kingdoms are ignoring him. They've broken their covenant with him. And he's roaring and thundering from where it all started. It says, goes on to say, the pastures of the shepherds will dry up. The top of Mount Carmel withers. Uh, it's an agricultural society, so if the pastures dry up, everyone's going to be affected. Everyone's going to suffer. And even from uh, the, the height of Mount Carmel, that was a coastal mountain range in the northern part of uh, Israel, and um, it's, it's a really high point. Even that, from the highest to the lowest, right across the whole nation, is going to be affected by a drought, a huge drought. And people who are an agricultural dependent society are going to be hit where it hurts the most. Also, God's going to send down, within 30 to 40 years, God's going to send down the Assyrians in the north. They're going to come down and they're going to smash and destroy Israel and ultimately Judah and all the other surrounding nations too. Next slide. This is the dominant theme of the whole book. It comes in chapter 5. Uh, God says, let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing never stream. Have you ever seen a river? Who's driven over to North Richmond? You go across the river, don't you? Uh, 
I don't, I've heard of, I've heard over and over and over stories when I've been here of floods, floods coming up almost to my house, covering the Richmond Air Force Base, you know, massive floods. I've never seen it, but I've heard about it. I've seen the pictures. I know it exists. I've been to the museum in, in um, Windsor and seen the pictures. I haven't seen a picture of the Hawkesbury River dried up. I don't think that happens. You see, the river down there is just going to keep flowing. There's always going to be water there. And that's what it's saying, let justice roll on like a river. Let justice always be there. Never ending justice, always there. Justice in the land. And righteousness like a never failing stream. Even a stream, even a stream in a time of drought, in a time of really difficult times, let there be righteousness. And it's saying in life, no matter what happens, let there always be righteousness. What's right by God? What God regards as right. Let that always happen in our relationships in what we do. That's the dominant theme we're going to see for Amos. And we're going to see that come out in a minute where God speaks about uh, Judah and Israel not doing that. You see, without a commitment to God's law, there's going to be no basis for right conduct. And we're going to see that also. No reference point. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Damascus, even four, I will not relent. He's going to go and talk about a whole lot of different countries um, and Damascus, Gaza, or places, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon and Moab. Next slide. And we'll see them on this map. They're all the ones surrounding Israel and Judah up the, down the right-hand side, down the left-hand side. All these nations and places have been causing problems and grief for Israel and Judah. And he's going to say for three sins, even four. He's not saying literally only three sins or only four sins. What that means is continuously sinning, never-ending sinning. So these nations have continued to sin. They, they just don't stop sinning. They're persisting in ignoring God's commands. And they're going to be punished. And Damascus on the top right-hand side in Syria has been a constant enemy of the, uh, in the north for Israel. And um, her crime was that she brutally conquered the people of Gilead up there, um, Israel's territory over the Jordan River on the side of Syria is. And it says for Damascus in chapter 1 verse 5 um, that uh, God's going to break down the gate of Damascus and will destroy the king who's in the valley of Avon. What's the importance about a gate? Remember ancient cities? They were surrounded by walls to protect them. And there were gates. And what were the gates? They were entry points. They were, they were places of great markets where trade had happened. But they were also security places where you could close the gate, keep people out. If the gates are destroyed, one, they lose their, their, their marketplace, but also they lose their security. And God is going to get them where uh, they're most vulnerable. He's going to strike them down um, in, their, um, in their security, but also in their prosperity and what they're relying on. Now Israel, in the north, Israel is saying, Yay, that's great God. Go Amos. We love this. Yeah, get those Damascus guys. Smash them. Israel's cheering. And Israel's going to cheer about all the other ones too. Yes, yes, yes. If someone's worse, does that make you good? You see, they're saying, yeah, these guys are really bad. But that doesn't make them good. And God's going to come and talk about Israel and Judah towards the end of what we look tonight. 
All these other nations are bad, but you guys are bad too. And you should know better because you know me. You've got knowledge of me. You've got a relationship with me. And that makes it even worse. Even though your crimes may not be as bad, it makes it worse. So then he goes on to talk about judgment on Judah in chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. He goes through all those other places. And verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2. He says, for three sins of Judah, even four, I will not relent because you rejected the law of the Lord. You've not kept his decrees and you've led astray by false gods. They've continued to sin. Three and four, that same formula means continuous sin. And God's wrath is on them. His righteous anger, he's justified. He's a patient, compassionate, understanding God. He's slow to anger. He abounds in love. But now it's time for tough love because he's got these rebellious children, these rebellious nations who are not listening to him, who are ignoring him. In fact, not just ignoring him, they're doing the deliberate opposite thing that he wants them to do and they know it. They're rebelling big time and he's going to get their attention. They've rejected his law, uh, the law he gave them as part of their covenant agreement. They've broken it and they've violated even... even, um, other laws that he's given and even though they might look around at the other nations saying how bad these nations are because these nations have violated generally regarded laws of humanity you read some of the stuff there which I won't talk about tonight but some of it's disgusting what they do but he said you're no good either because you should know better Israel and Judah and they've been led away by false gods. Back in Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 14, uh, it said about the, they're following the ancestors and the gods of Baal, which they came and worshipped. False gods have led them away. What does society trust in today? Do we have false gods? I mean, we don't have Baals and we don't have you know, other gods like that, but what are the false gods that we might be tempted to trust, tempted to rely on, tempted to pursue? Why might we might serve? What we might put our energies to? I mean, we're living in a similar society, as Peter introduced at the beginning. We're living in a similar society as these nations here who are affluent, who are going really well. Life is easy. Life is comfortable. And that alone can become our God. Prosperity, comfortable living can become our God. And we can serve that. And we can place our security and our trust in, in our super, in our money, in our housing, in what we have, and not in our God. And then those things become alternatives to who God is. They become false gods. So Judah is going to get punished the same as all the other nations. They're going to lose their defensive. They're going to lose their wealth that they trusted in. Those two things they made, their God, their, their power, their, their defences, And also their wealth, they're going to lose both of those. And Israel, Israel also continues to sin in chapters 2, verse 6 and following. And they've got um, just moral morality's decline really here. Um, In chapters 2, verse 6, it says, They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor and on the dust of the ground. They deny justice to the oppressed. And that goes on. Um, They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling them into slavery. Slavery is a part of life. 
Um, if you went bankrupt, if you owed a massive amount of money, you couldn't pay it back, you're faced with you know, you know, not having enough money to live on, having a really difficult life, you could sell yourself into slavery to the person you owed the money. They would then provide accommodation and food and look after you, but you would then become their slave. And it was a voluntary thing. You couldn't be made a slave. You actually would have to agree to it and be sold into slavery. But what's happening here, they're forcing people into slavery. There's no voluntary part of it. They're just saying, you owe me money, you're going to become my slave. Or you're poor, you're going to become my slave. So they've misused the Lord. Now they're they're abusing people. There's no justice, there's no righteousness at all in what they're doing. They're trampling the heads of the poor and denying justice to those who are oppressed. Going against the theme of the book, which we looked at a while ago in chapter 5, verse 24, which said... Chapter 5, verse 24. <coughs> Excuse me. Let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Righteousness and justice to everyone. So now he said to all the nations, they're going to get smashed, they're in trouble. Now he said to his, his people, uh, Israel and Judah, you guys have done the wrong things and now you're going to be judged and now the punishment's going to be announced in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Hear the word, people of Israel. Now he's talking to the whole group of the 12 tribes, not the two groups, Israel and Judah. The people of Israel, the word of the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought out of Egypt. He's reunited them as the people he brought out of Egypt, not the two groups. You're the ones I brought out. You're the ones I've chosen. You're the ones I'm now telling you how you're going to get punished. They're accountable. Verse 2 goes on. I chose you out of all the families of the earth, therefore I'll punish you for all your sins. You're a privileged group of people. I chose you from all the others. I chose you to be my people, to give you my name, to enter a special relationship with you, to make a covenant agreement with you, to look after and provide for you, and now you're rejecting me. And God's not happy at all. They're in trouble. There's seven rhetorical questions that follow in verses 3 to 8, which are really sort of showing that pride comes before a fall and there's going to be trouble that's going to happen now. It's like, you know, if, you, if you're driving on the road, you hear a siren, what do you do? Do you ignore it? If it gets louder and louder and louder, you start looking. If it's not in front of you, where is it? It's behind you. If you're hearing a siren next to someone's bimping a horn, you look behind you and here's a fire engine or a police truck or an ambulance right in your back window, you need to pull over, don't you? You need to let them pass. And that's what's happening with the nation of Israel. The two nations combined, Judah and Israel, God's people, God's saying, pay attention. There are real problems here. You're in really big trouble. Listen to me. It's a warning. Look at verse 7 of chapter 3. Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plans to his servants, the prophets. He uses his prophets to tell the people what's going to happen, to tell them the plans. Forewarned is to be forearmed. Even when God is angry, he's merciful. He always warns his people. Sin is going to be followed by judgment, but in between sin and judgment, there'll always be warnings. An opportunity to turn away from sin, to repent. 
and to seek forgiveness. And it's the same today with Jesus. God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. God wants people to listen to him, respond to Jesus and be forgiven. Does God want us to be like Amos, to warn people of the danger that's approaching and avoid it by turning to Jesus? Look at verse 12 of chapter 3. As a shepherd rescues the lion, from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of ear, so will Israelites living in Samaria be rescued. I really didn't understand this. I had to go to the commentaries to sort of try and work out what was it saying. And then I understood it. Because remember, Amos is a shepherd. And Amos is a guy who's cared for his sheep. He's had wild animals come and attack his sheep and, and, and uh, rip them apart. And he's, he's tried to rescue them. He's picked up the pieces. If someone comes along to the... And, and uh, shepherds don't always have their own sheep. They look after other people's sheep too. They'll have their own, but they'll have a flock made up of other people's too. They'll take it out and bring it back at night. And if Amos came back and there's one sheep missing, he said, oh, sorry, you know, your, your sheep got taken away by a wolf or something or a bear. Um, the owner could think, well, is that true? Or is Amos just, you know, eating mutton for lunch or what? But if Amos comes back with a couple of legs and a bit of ear that have been mauled by a wild animal, the owner's going to say, okay, yeah, and that wild animal has taken my sheep. That's evidence. Evidence that, that the wild animals come. And that's what it's saying here. Amos is saying that he's, he's using it to prove to um, the owner that the animal has been taken by a lion and not stolen. And so it will be with Israel because Israel is going to be mutilated. There's going to be a remnant left of Israel and they're going to survive. They're going to be taken away by the Assyrians in exile in about 30, 40 years' time. They're going to go away for 50 years. They're going to come back. And they're going to survive, but they're not going to survive in the same way. They're going to be a broken nation. They're going to have to rebuild. And especially for God that they're going to carry away with God, um, carry away with them uh, that they know about God. And they've got a greater responsibility then to respond to him. What does it mean for us? What does all this about Amos mean for us tonight? You know, we know about Jesus coming. We know about him dying on the cross and rising again. Amos didn't know about that. None of the Old Testament guys knew about that. We know about that. And how serious are we now about living with Jesus as the focus of our life, not just our Saviour, but as our Lord? We sum it up in our motto, living our lives for Jesus. Do we do that? I mean, we live in a society, we live in a culture that says, wants to so easily sidetrack and entangle us and say, you know, just don't be so serious about Jesus. There's more things to be serious about your job, about your career, about your family, about your income, about your future, about about this, about sport, about hobbies. There's just so much out there The society says you need to think about, you need to focus on. Just press the pause button on Jesus. Move him over the side for a while. Get on with all these things. They're more important. And Amos is saying, no, and they're not. No, they're not. We need to keep God the center of who we are. We need to keep God the Son, Jesus, at the center of who we are. We need to keep clearly focused on him. Don't press the pause button ever. Be serious about him. Be committed to him. The warning for Amos is that we need to take God seriously, no matter who we are, no matter where we are in life. 
Because that's how God wants it to be. God's a, a loving, caring, generous Father. And he wants to embrace us. He wants us to, to be with him. He doesn't want us to be the rebellious child walking away from him, ignoring him. He loves us. And life is going to be so much better when we respond to God. Let me pray. Thank you, God, for your character. You're patient with us. You know that none of us are perfect. You know that we all struggle. We all struggle with letting you rule our lives. Thank you for forbearing with us. Thank you for being slow to anger. Thank you for being compassionate and understanding us. Thank you for being a God who abounds in love. Lord, as we reflect on Amos, help us to be people who listen to the warning, who are aware that judgment comes, who seek forgiveness, and who rejoice that we're made right with you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.